Coming up on Focus Black Oklahoma, we explore the ongoing complications around evictions and rental assistance in the state. Our new series, In a Confused State, takes us through the often complicated nature of progress in advancing democracy. The political is embodied in our first segment on reproductive rights. We examine the many ways in which our war overseas informs war at home in part two of a series on Afghanistan. We chat with members of the LGBTQIA community about how Oklahoma could be more welcoming to others across difference. We spotlight neighborhood leaders in McAllister who are working to preserve two significant black landmarks. All this and more just ahead on Focus Black Oklahoma. Focus Black Oklahoma is sponsored by the Black Church Traditions and African-American Faith Life Program at Phillips Seminary, offering a master's degree in social justice online and in person. Learn more at wherefaithleads.com. This is Focus Black Oklahoma. I'm Kuma Roberts. And I'm Colby Webster. Complications with housing evictions and rental assistance are still challenging residents across the country as we continue to navigate the COVID-19 pandemic. Carlos Moreno has more on how aid is being distributed and what problems persist. Research from Princeton University shows that Oklahoma's eviction rate is twice the national average. And according to numbers released by the Federal Emergency Rental Assistance Program, rental assistance isn't reaching those who need it the most. As part of the initial CARES Act in March 2020, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recommended and Congress passed a moratorium on evictions nationwide. That moratorium ended on August 26th of this year after a 6-3 to three vote by the Supreme Court. An estimated 95,000 Oklahoma households are behind on rent, according to data from the University of Southern California's National Equity Atlas. A December 2020 study by Princeton University's Eviction Lab shows that one out of every three evictions are filed against black renters. The study found that black and Latinx renters in general, and women in particular, are more likely to be served with an eviction notice and disproportionately evicted from their homes. Data from the Open Justice Oklahoma's court data tracker shows that despite the CDC moratorium, more than 12,529 eviction notices have been issued in Tulsa since March of 2020, and 5,323 evictions have been granted by the Tulsa County Court. One of the reasons evictions are continuing is that renters are not getting the money allocated by programs such as the Emergency Rental Assistance Program, or ERAP. Tulsa County has distributed only 14.2% of its rental assistance money, while the state of Oklahoma has distributed 14% of its share. Former teacher Leslie Witherspoon decided to leave her teaching job for her safety due to her co-workers not enforcing safety guidelines and ignoring concerns about being more vulnerable to COVID due to her chronic asthma. 
After turning in her resignation in August of last year, Witherspoon bounced between jobs and by October found herself needing help paying rent. I heard about the COVID rental assistance funds and I tracked down the organization that was administering that and I had applied with them. It was kind of a drawn out process. I was also in contact with my landlord at the time, just letting them know I'm applying for rental assistance. Because when you're going through the process of this, you have to be in contact with your landlord. You have to provide all this documentation like income verification and housing verification to show that you do in fact live where you live. You in fact do not have the income to pay rent. In the end, it's up to the landlord to accept the funds or not. I applied for everything. I was in contact with my landlord, keeping them up to date about what was going on and going back and forth with this this organization. And finally, they told me that I was denied assistance. And their reasoning for denying me assistance was I'd had an income increase my second paycheck. You're supposed to give them like a month of income. I had gotten paid $10 more on my second paycheck than my first. It wasn't like $10 an hour. It was literally just $10. Renters like Witherspoon are finding help by showing up to their assigned court date and navigating the process with the help of the nonprofit Legal Aid. The organization helped Witherspoon stay in her apartment while appealing three eviction notices, one of which was issued for growing flowers on her patio as part of her new business she started to generate income. After a year of court proceedings, Witherspoon has been able to remain in her apartment with the agreement that she would pay the landlord's legal fees. Legal Aid also helped her apply for rental assistance a second time, and she was approved. Michael Figgins, Executive Director of Legal Aid Services of Oklahoma, indicates that they have been able to prevent about 3,000 evictions this year. I'm in court, I'm struggling to pay rent, and I'm having to take time away from my kids. I've interrupted my business. They pull me up on this, I felt like it was a scurrilous lease violation. I wasn't hurting anybody, I was growing plants in a space that I had been told by my landlord was a part of my apartment and that I could use. And now I'm having to pay $200 for this? There are so many pitfalls for people who are living in poverty to get trapped by our legal system. And there are plenty of people that are willing to use the legal system to extract whatever they want. Which, And I have to say, legal aid is fantastic. If you know anybody who's having issues like this, send them to legal aid. They kind of embody the not all heroes wear capes. Even before the pandemic, Tulsa County had the 11th highest eviction rate in the nation. For the most part, large corporate apartment complex owners are responsible for this. Businesses account for 83% of eviction filings. One example reported by the Oklahoma Policy Institute is Cobblestone Apartments, owned by TMC Property Management, headquartered in Redondo Beach, California. The company filed 629 evictions from 2019 to 2020, ranking it as the highest eviction filer in the entire state. Meanwhile, individual landlords like James Deming find themselves caught in the same bureaucratic mess. Deming lost his job during the pandemic, and a tenant in his family's rental home also found themselves in financial hardship. When he found a new job, he worked with his tenant to try and keep them in their home. Our tenant at the time, this was around Christmas, was actually behind on the rent, and I felt very fortunate and a lot of gratitude that I was able to find a job. I contacted our property manager and said, wipe out what they owe, set it back to zero, let's see if we can get them back on track. So I just ate that difference. And then that tenant has continued to be either behind or late on rent 
but has always made some efforts to pay that money until you know July, and then the rent completely stopped. Which I know they've applied for assistance, and we're waiting on that assistance, but we're three months out of not receiving any rent at all on this home. And we still continue to pay the mortgage. We still get phone calls about maintenance issues. I spent $200 last month on plumbing at our home, even though we received not a dime in rent. So I think for us, we're making the mortgage and making it work, but we're not loaded, we're not rich, and it impacts us negatively. And I think the thought process that people should get to stay in their homes as long as they possibly can, you know, if they can't afford the rent, they can't afford the rent, you know, let's keep them in their homes forgets the fact that there's another layer, someone like us that's behind that home, paying that mortgage, paying the maintenance costs. And we may not be a corporate entity that's worth millions and millions of dollars. It's just, it's a home. You know, we just have one. If you are in need of rental assistance, visit LegalAidOK.org or call 211. Organizations such as Community Cares Partners in Oklahoma City, Restore Hope Ministry in Tulsa, and Legal Aid of Oklahoma are continuing to help renters get the help that they need. The Tulsa Emergency Rental Assistance Program has distributed more than $12 million in rent and utility payments to more than 2,500 Tulsa households since the effort began in March of this year, and the program encourages renters and local landlords to apply for assistance. For Focus, Black Oklahoma, I'm Carlos Moreno in Tulsa. The connections between foreign and domestic policy war-making overseas, and the militarization of police forces here at home affect U.S. lives in a myriad of ways. In the second part of this series on the war in Afghanistan, Nick Alexandrov examines how the U.S. military budget helps make funding social programs a challenge. Last month, I reported on an Oklahoma group linked to the 2001 bombing of Afghanistan. The Center for Aircraft and Systems Support Infrastructure brought together engineers from the University of Oklahoma, Oklahoma State University, and the University of Tulsa. And at its headquarters at Tinker Air Force Base in Oklahoma City, it maintained an upgraded aging aircraft, like the B-1 bomber. 20 years ago, that revamped plane unleashed cluster bombs across Afghanistan. Thousands of civilians died in the assault. And that oversees attack on communities of color for journalist and activist Sonali Kolhatkar resonates here at home. Just as we've seen that bombing people does not result in democracy in other countries, heavy-handed policing in our cities does not result in happy families, well-fed children, well-educated people, and full employment. It's quite the opposite. It results in fractured families and the bonds of our society torn apart and trauma and of course, killings of people. That violent reaction to social issues and social problems is not the right way to solve the problem. It's a violent response enabled by easy access to military hardware. Someone pointed out that the military equipment and vehicles that the Taliban now control were meant for small town American police departments. (laughs) You know, if the US had had a chance to bring them back, that's where they would have gone. They could have reached local law enforcement through two channels. 
There's the Department of Defense's 1033 program, an easy way for police to get assault rifles, grenade launchers, and armored vehicles on the cheap. And the Department of Homeland Security, through its State Homeland Security Program and Urban Area Security Initiative, gives police grant money for additional military-grade materiel. Wherever you are in Oklahoma, you don't have to look far to find a force that's taken advantage of these programs. Take mine-resistant vehicles, for example. Police departments in Ada, Bartlesville, Bixby, Chickasha, Duncan, Enid, Guthrie, Moore, Muskogee, Shawnee, Tulsa, and War Acres all have them, as do 14 sheriff's departments across the state. They're everywhere. And their ubiquity for David A. Love, a writer and journalism professor at Rutgers, signals that there's a kind of domestic war underway. I think that there's no way that America can wage these wars abroad with all this violence and not have it blow back here in the U.S. I think that at its worst, America will view its marginalized populations as a foreign enemy. The police have always had that attitude. Certainly communities of color have viewed the police as an occupying force. And the police have viewed poor and marginalized communities as the enemy. Consider the term terrorist, for example. It's used to label U.S. military targets. Recall that all of Afghanistan was classed as a terrorist nation 20 years ago. And it's also used to label groups critical of U.S. policing. Like in June last year, when Oklahoma County District Attorney David Prater charged several Black Lives Matter protesters with terrorism. For Sonali, the real parallel is between Black Lives Matter and the anti-war movement. You see the echoes of what the Black Lives Matter movement has called for in, in asking for defunding the police. You've seen many echoes of that for an even longer time in the anti-war movement about demilitarization and basically cutting funding for war fighting, cutting the Pentagon budget and diverting those funds to social services here at home instead. And, and very much that's the defunding police call domestically. Let's stop funding the armed responses to social problems and let's start funding the solutions, the constructive solutions to those social problems instead. David agrees, emphasizing that ambitious social programs simply aren't feasible in a country where 53 cents of every federal discretionary dollar goes to the military. You just can't cure poverty when you're putting most of your money into these weapons. It's, it's a big problem. And looking at today, Biden is a work in progress, but he's trying to do some big things. You can't do any of those things as long as you have all of these military bases. We have so many military bases around the world in all of these countries just trillions of dollars going to all of this. And then at the same time, you have 30% of military families who are eligible for food stamps. It just doesn't make sense. And it really speaks to priorities that we decide to have. For human rights activists surveying Afghanistan after 20 years of US occupation, there's really one priority. It's the same thing Tulsa race massacre survivors are now demanding as compensation for their trauma. The Revolutionary Association of the Women of Afghanistan is forthright about the occupation's legacy and about its demand. 
it is not only bombing and killing but mainly the sorrows homelessness and miseries brought to our millions of men and women the hundreds of widows and orphans left after war the stress and hopelessness that our people and young generation faced the us government owes our homeland the us government owes in a word reparations for focus black oklahoma i'm nick alexandrov at tinker air force base in oklahoma city Now, some headlines from across the state. The number of people killed by police officers in the U.S. has been massively underreported in official statistics over the past four decades, with an additional 17,000 deaths over that period, according to new research by The Conversation, a nonprofit organization focused on fact and research-based journalism. More than 30,000 deaths from police violence were found between 1980 and 2018, yet during that time, the National Vital Statistics Systems underreported fatal police violence by 55.5%. The Cherokee Nation in Oklahoma has reached a $75 million opioid settlement with three of the nation's largest drug distributors, the first deal of its kind with the tribal government in the country. Amerisource Burgeon, Cardinal Health, and McKesson shipped vast quantities of highly addictive pain pills over the past 20 years, triggering an avalanche of lawsuits. In a statement, Cherokee Nation Principal Chief Chuck Hoskin Jr. said the opioid crisis had disproportionately affected people in his community. Marilyn Van, president of the descendants of the freedmen of the five civilized tribes, recently became the first person of freedman status to attain a government position in the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma. For over 20 years, Van has been fighting for the rights of freedmen, descendants of people enslaved by members of the Cherokee, Chickasaw, Choctaw, Muscogee, and Seminole nations. Van worked for over three decades as an engineer for the U.S. Treasury Department. State Superintendent of Education Joy Hoffmeister will leave the GOP and register as a Democrat as part of a bid to defeat Governor Kevin Stitt in the 2022 election. Stitt won more than 54% of the vote in 2018. Hoffmeister told the Tulsa World that the governor is running the state into the ground and accused him of extremism and damaging aspects of Oklahoma. Catholic Charities of Oklahoma is housing Afghan refugees across the state who fled the chaos of the U.S. exit of the war in Afghanistan and the Taliban takeover. Catholic Charities is the only refugee resettlement agency in Oklahoma, and they've received around 1,800 Afghans. That's the third most in the country after only California and Texas. Tulsa alone has welcomed 850 refugees. A judge is deciding whether survivors of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre can sue for damages more than 100 years after Greenwood was burned to the ground. The claim is that in 1921, those groups set the massacre into motion and ever since have continued to discriminate and segregate Tulsa through policies to push blacks north with urban renewal and redlining and favoring white developers. They want the city, the state, and the Tulsa Chamber to pay, but the judge could dismiss the case. Bruce's Beach, a once thriving resort for black families owned by Willa and Charles Bruce, was seized by the town of Manhattan Beach in 1924 with the stated goal of building a park. This month, California Governor Gavin Newsom signed a bill allowing the plot of land along the Southern California coast to be returned to the descendants who lost it to eminent domain nearly a century ago. A racist message on a cardboard sign was left outside of Tulsa's Greenwood Rising History Center and Greenwood Chamber of Commerce, which read, 
Downtown Inward Town. Phil Armstrong, executive director of the Greenwood Rising Museum, was quoted in the Tulsa World as saying, Gone are the days where something like this can be used as a scare tactic. Instead, they hope to use it as an example of the work that still needs to be done. Arab Film Fest Tulsa comes to Circle Cinema October 21st through 24th through renowned film and literary organization Mizna. Critically acclaimed indie films, docs, and shorts from Egypt, Syria, Palestine, Lebanon, Sudan, and the U.S., plus filmmaker talks and opening and closing night receptions will be featured throughout the three-day event. That was a clip from the film festival's opening night feature, Sawad, a tale of two Egyptian sisters, one of whom is leading a double life while the other embarks on a journey looking for answers, and will feature a talk with the director at the conclusion of the film. You're listening to Focus Black Oklahoma. Focus Black Oklahoma has been selected to participate in the Advancing Democracy Cohort with the Solutions Journalism Network, or SJN. Our series, In a Confused State, will follow Oklahoma advocacy groups navigating new restrictions on freedoms in three areas, reproductive rights, teaching history, and direct action activism. Here, Jamie Glisson shares deeply personal experiences to highlight the political war on women's bodies. This is a different story for me. This is vulnerable and raw. This is personal. Turning something microscopic into a real-life human is an amazing thing. However, getting from point A to point B is not always a straight line. As someone who has made this journey more times than I care to admit, it can be grueling, heartbreaking, and so heavy that it leaves an unrepairable void inside you. Nine times. I have endured this journey nine times. The very first time I miscarried, I was living in Virginia, but was visiting family in Tulsa for the holidays. I started bleeding soon after we arrived. I called my doctor, who instructed me to go to the ER. I was checked in to St. Francis Hospital and eventually told that the life inside me was no longer viable. At the ripe age of 21, I was instructed to go home and let, quote, things happen as intended. It won't be more than a heavy period, end quote. At around 10 weeks of pregnancy, on Christmas Eve of 2002, my water broke. After dealing with the initial shock, I started hemorrhaging and then delivered my tiny baby on Christmas Day. Eventually, I ended up at Hillcrest Hospital so that the necessary measures could be taken if needed. I labored for six hours for a fetus I had already passed. Six hours that I not only did not want, but did not need. The first hospital I was taken to decided for me that having a DNC was wrong. A dilation and curatage procedure, also called a DNC, is a surgical procedure in which the cervix is dilated so that the uterine lining can be scraped to remove abnormal tissues. I was born and raised in Texas, and as of 2012, I live in Oklahoma. Throughout my 39 years of life, of which I have lived many, I have had the privilege of being exposed to many different types of people and cultures. Growing up in a military family instills a sense of pride for country, a sense of duty, a sense of carrying on no matter what. 
My parents taught me resilience. They taught me to fend for myself because others will not always have my best interests at heart. On September 1st, 2021, the state of Texas passed House Bill 1500, also known as the Heartbeat Bill. The bill establishes a system in which members of the public can sue for a minimum of $10,000 in damages anyone who performs or facilitates an illegal abortion, an abortion after six weeks in the womb. I wanted to be pregnant. My husband and I were elated. At 10 weeks of pregnancy, if I had not been praying for a child and testing regularly, I would have had no idea I was pregnant. I felt nothing. However, even though this child was already loved and wanted, it would never take breath in this world. I spent the next nine months of my life in a dense fog. Though being a mother in 2002 wasn't ultimately going to happen, I did not want to endure the hell that was decided for me. If this situation would have happened today, I would have chosen to go to a hospital that would have performed the appropriate procedure and saved me from the turmoil I endured. But today, that doctor would be sued. My mother that cared for me would be sued. My husband would be sued. My father that coached me through the process and kept me lucid would be sued. My baby sisters that were ready to donate their blood to me would have been sued. The heartbeat bill does not directly address miscarriages, but leaves a rather vague explanation on how to handle them. It has been argued that this bill leaves room for accusations of, quote, suspicious, end quote, miscarriage, allowing legal matters to proceed on the basis of subjective interpretation, costing the accused time and money, not to mention heartache. I cannot help but feel a certain way about the heartbeat bill. I can't help but think of all the would-be young mothers that had their autonomy taken from them, to have their futures chosen for them. When I miscarried, I didn't lose a person. I lost an idea, a plan for my future. Women that are forced to give birth are also losing their ideas and future plans. On January 20th, 2017, I flew to Washington, D.C. and marched with at least 800,000 others in the name of autonomy in the name of showing we will not be put in a corner. We will not be grabbed without consent. We will not do what we do not want. On Inauguration Day, I was touring our beautiful nation's capital at the same exact time as the inauguration itself. My three lifelong friends were by my side as we took pictures at the Washington Monument and reflecting pool. We attempted to peek through the scaffolding to get a glimpse of Abraham Lincoln. It was almost magical to have the place nearly to ourselves minus the random couple or two that strolled by. Despite my feelings towards wanting the ability to control my own body, I do see the other side. I understand not wanting to have that medical intervention. I understand letting nature take its course, letting what is, quote, meant to be, unquote, happen. I've also been in this position. And while at the time I was doing what I thought was admirable and what was, quote, unquote, best for my body, it was not. I once again hemorrhaged, and this time, I almost let it go too long. I once again miscarried and had my tiny three-inch baby at home in my bathtub that I promptly filled up with too much blood unnecessarily. Yes, that is graphic, but so is life, and in this case, death. On October 2nd, 2021, I attended the Women's March in Tulsa. I saw women, young and old, and every generation in between. Some just attended to walk quietly alongside others. Some showed in full Handmaid's Tale attire. 
Some showed with their bullhorns full of fire. Some were men, some were grandparents, some were new to walking and talking. I met a woman named Becky Aldridge. Becky was a speaker representing the Native Voice at the Women's March. She spoke about so much more than just the heartbeat bill. For instance, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton is attempting to overturn the Indian Child Welfare Act. In 2018, Attorney General Paxton brought the issue to the Texas Supreme Court, claiming that the Indian Child Welfare Act is racist. Becky brought awareness to the lobbying done by private adoption agencies. She connected dots between the foster care system, the prison pipeline, and more. Here is Becky. One of the intersectionalities with the issue of reproductive rights we must discuss today is the business of children. You heard me right, that's the business of children. A portion of these pro-life bills across the U.S. are sponsored by pro-life groups. These pro-life groups are heavily funded by private adoption agencies. Private adoption agencies earn on average of $40,000 per adoption, with 135,000 adoptions happening yearly. Infants are the most desired by people wanting to adopt, with an average of 40 adoptees waiting per infant. However, in 2019, the U.S. had over 122,000 kids waiting to be adopted, with an average age of 8. Some states have even privatized their foster system in the same manner in which they privatized prisons with the same results. Children in the system and children becoming numbers on a spreadsheet for profit. And with the average age of uh, the average of 20,000 children aging out of the foster system yearly, these kids do not have a support system in place and often end up in the street or worse, they feel the foster care to prison pipeline. 90% of the children have been placed in multiple foster homes that end up in the juvenile justice system. Native children are four times more likely to be taken from their family and placed in foster care. Native children are overrepresented in the foster care system at a rate 2.1 times higher than their portion of the population. The foster system is not healing our community. More often than not, the foster system is failing our community. And make no mistake about it, CPS is the modern day boarding school. The Indian Child Welfare Act is currently under attack by the state of Texas. If Texas was successful at abolishing the Indian Child Welfare Act, you can guarantee that Governor Stitt will be chomping at the bits to do the same here. Yeah. Stitt is doing everything he can to dismantle all tribal sovereignty. The man who ran on an Indian ticket, proud to be a Cherokee citizen, who promised us he would do right by Indian country, and he is failing us in that respect. You can no longer accept him aligning himself with big business to cushion his pad for the next four years. We have to actively participate in our democratic process by voting and staying informed at all levels. They want to govern our bodies with no regard for our own health. They want to take away our right to choose when most of us can't even afford the time to take off work to be sick, let alone to give birth. Well, I say not today. Not I say no to House Bill 2441, 1102, and 1904. No to Senate Bill 918 and 778. You will not take away our sovereignties. We must stay active. We must stay active in voting locally and tribally if you are a tribal citizen. Call, email, Facebook your state representative and make uh, let them know you say no to these bills. If you're a tribal citizen, Woo! make noise with your chief and council too. Yeah. Let them know our tribal citizens need systems in place for our families and better protections for our sovereignty. Yeah. I'd like to close by saying thank you all for listening to me. And I'd also like to offer my sincerest apologies for any elders or any other marginalized groups I may have spoken over. Thank you. Mado. Becky was referring to the new anti-abortion laws that are slotted to take effect on November 1st in Oklahoma. 
the state's women's clinics are already inundated with women from Texas. For example, the Trust Women Clinic in Oklahoma City performed abortions for 11 women from Texas during the month of August. In September, that number rose to 110. Other nearby states are reporting the same increase. According to Heather Palacios of Planned Parenthood Great Plains, Planned Parenthood is currently pursuing legislation and a joint lawsuit with the Center of Reproductive Rights. While she is unable to provide specifics, they are hopeful for a, quote, positive outcome and to curb the legislation that is coming our way that is unconstitutional and aggressive, end quote. Heather continued and discussed the effect of Texas women coming to Oklahoma for help. So we're seeing an unprecedented surge of patients currently crossing the border from Texas because the right to abortion has been all out banned in their home state. They are coming to Oklahoma City and Tulsa more than anywhere else in the country. They are scared, they are angry, and they are also relieved that Planned Parenthood is still here on the ground to provide the support that they seek that is their constitutional right. Planned Parenthood Great Plains operates in four states, Arkansas, Kansas, Missouri, and Oklahoma, across 11 health centers. And as mentioned before, one of the best ways to support their cause is to stay active in voting. Heather also said making donations are almost just as important. They can make a gift to Planned Parenthood. They can go online to ppgreatplains.org and make a gift, even better, make a sustaining gift on a monthly basis to ensure that we continue to provide essential health care to our patients, no matter their zip code and no matter what. Planned Parenthood Great Plains is also bringing back their patient escort services. Heather explains. We are actively bringing back our patient escorts. There's never been a better time as the protesters are aggressive and truly coming out in hordes um, for these patients who are just seeking essential health care. And if people want to go online and get in touch with us and sign up to be a volunteer, um, they just need to contact us. Jenny Russo, who also spoke at the Tulsa Women's March, brought up her own experience with abortion. My pregnancies were not the result of rape. They were not the result of incest. To my knowledge, the pregnancies were not threatening my life. To my knowledge, those were not non-viable fetuses that I was carrying. Maybe I could tell you my story about my abortions and you'd say, oh yeah, that's fine. She had every reason, good reasons. It doesn't matter. Jenny draws an interesting line between the reasoning of pro-life legislation, being that those with a uterus are sustaining another life, 
and helping sick children that are already alive and breathing. In 2012, Senator Connie Johnson, who at the time represented Oklahoma's District 48, introduced an amendment to Senate Bill 1433, also called the Personhood Bill. This bill was authored by State Senator Brian Crane of District 39. The Personhood Bill claimed life began at conception. It would have potentially allowed governmental intrusion into the personal lives of women by policing what happens to their eggs without any similar thought to what happens to a man's sperm. It gave embryos and fetuses all the rights and immunities of other citizens. This brought international attention to the reproduction laws of Oklahoma. The Daily Show with Jon Stewart even did a skit titled Bro Choice, in which Senator Johnson was interviewed along with Senator Ralph Shorty of District 44. Senator Shorty claimed that the amendment was a, quote, overreach, an egregious attack on personal liberties from the government. It is a huge free choice issue, and basically, the government is telling a man what he can and cannot do with his body, end quote. Senator Shorty served his term until 2017 and advocated family values during his campaigns. Senator Shorty was a state campaign chair for former President Donald Trump in the 2016 presidential election. In March of 2017, he resigned after being charged with three felonies relating to soliciting prostitution from a male minor. In September of 2017, a federal grand jury in Oklahoma City charged Senator Shorty with four counts, one of which he pled guilty to with an agreement that the others would be dropped. Jailed since his plea, Shorty was sentenced in September 2018 to 15 years in prison, to be followed by 10 years of supervised release. Here is Senator Johnson explaining the bill and her amendment. Personhood um, gave a fetus rights at the moment of conception. In other words, that fetus could own property, it could sue and be sued, and it was just an egregious attempt 
to further control women by controlling what was in their bodies. So my amendment essentially said, if we're gonna control what's in women's bodies, let's control what's in men's bodies too. The amendment technically read, anytime a man ejaculates anywhere other than in a woman's vagina, it would be considered a violation of the personhood bill. I cannot minimize how important it was that women came together from, from both sides of the issue. Just people came together and raised their voices. And then that skid hit and the bill died. The bill never went to the House floor. So, but you know, ever since then, the assault has become regular. And to this year, to the point there are five bills that are ready to take effect November 1. And this is very disturbing. Since Senator Johnson is also running for governor of Oklahoma, I asked her what her first action to help Oklahoma women would be. My first act towards helping women is to declare that women's bodies are their own, that our government has no place in trying to regulate a woman's personal and private health care decisions. And that's an easy leap because the government has no business in anyone's personal and private health care decisions. So I want to make that plain. We'll make that clear. Nancy Coriel, the president of Roe Fund and active with PlanCPill.org, talks about why she attended the Women's March and how Texas's recent legislation has affected Oklahoma. It's important for me to be here today because I feel like our right to body autonomy is being attacked and women need to stand up and speak out and vote. I feel that the Texas legislation has really affected Oklahoma for a number of reasons. One, we have a very similar law that's going into effect November 1st here in Oklahoma and our abortion clinics in Oklahoma are overrun with women needing abortions even before Texas shut down and um, lots and lots of Texas women are coming to our clinics and we need to help everybody that needs access to abortion care. In Oklahoma, the cheapest abortion you can receive is $650 and that's for the medical abortion with pills. $650 is a million dollars to someone in poverty. Not being able to make decisions about when we have children and how many children we have affects every facet of our life. It affects our ability to continue our education, our ability to care for the children we already have, our ability to end abusive relationships. We can't be free if we can't control our bodies and our reproduction. Leanne Crosby has been the organizer of Tulsa's Women's March since 2017. We briefly talked about why she chose to organize this march in particular and some of the roadblocks she faced along the way. There's several reasons. Um, the main reason that I thought that was important is we can't go back in time. we got to keep abortion safe. And we've moved this far. And so I want to make sure that everyone's safe and there's safe procedures. And by holding marches, this is a little bit more than making phone calls. This is saying, hey, we're, we're showing up and we're going to keep showing up to make change. During our permit time, um, we were told that we could get permits for the sidewalks, that they did not have enough officers or enough planning time to have the roads blocked off, that you have to apply for the roads to be blocked off 90 days ahead of time. And so they were unable to do that. 
and they hadn't didn't have any officers um, sign up through the off-duty officer company. I do believe it's a new rule because in the past we've been able to get permits within two or three days. Um, we usually only plan the Women's March for about 10 or 14 days each year in December or January and so um, we've never had this issue before. I do believe it's a new ordinance because the cost of the permit went up as well. Before I wrapped up my day at the March, I was able to catch up with Becky Aldridge to discuss why she chose to speak. As an indigenous woman, a woman, it's important to have autonomy over our body, right? Because they have taken our children from us, and um, during the scoop era, they have experimented with sterilization on not just indigenous women, but black women as well. So I think it's very important to recognize the intersectionalities when we talk about women's rights as well, and having that choice over our own bodies. So an Indian Child Welfare Act is probably the nearest and dearest to my heart because, like I said, in Texas they're trying to abolish that after they did the abortion ban. And that to us is just a signal of trying to take more of our babies from us. So you know, we're trying to do everything we can to protect our cultures. While so many women I spoke to inspired me and filled me with the hope that our state and states like ours will stop trying to punish women, I cannot help but feel defeated. We already incarcerate more women per capita than any other place in the world. I brought up that fact once while sitting at a lunch table with a coworker, and he very simply and very seriously responded, quote, wow, I wonder why our women are just so bad, end quote. I immediately burst into laughter at the comment, thinking he was attempting to make a joke, but he just blankly looked back at me. This was no joke. He was stone cold serious. As I grow older, I see just how much of a disconnect there is between the haves and the have-nots, between those that have suffered or experienced hardships of any kind and those that haven't. One thing I know for sure is that it seems impossible for someone to have empathy or understanding of another's situation until they have experienced it themselves. Becky's words lingered with me more than any other. I am a foster parent and my foster child is a citizen of the Choctaw Nation. While this is a kinship foster, and it is extremely important to me to raise this child as a strong, independent thinker with strong community roots and a strong sense of self rooted in their culture, it makes me want to fight even harder for the rights of the next generation. I never want my children to experience what I went through. I never want my children to experience anything close to what was described by Becky. We cannot rule each other. We can have rules to follow, rules for the common good, but trying to force beliefs by some onto many is simply not right. In the name of protecting one life, how many more are harmed? There is an awful lot of discussion these days about liberties and freedoms, but are those rights intended for women? Nearly 50 years ago, starting in the 70s, the mantra, my body, my choice, was coined in the fight for equality, more specifically, women's rights. These days, the phrase once proudly shouted from the mouths of feminists is being employed to fit a very different agenda. The four words meant to be used as a war over reproductive rights is now used by those against them. For Focus, Black Oklahoma, I'm Jamie Glisson in Tulsa.
The struggle to make visible the contributions of Black Oklahomans is underway in McAllister. Shalandra Harrison has more on preserving two important Black landmarks. In small cities and towns, historical buildings and monuments that once, and in some instances still, serve as places of reverence aren't always preserved so that future generations can learn about their significance. If there aren't people who still actively work to maintain such places, many become in disrepair or are torn down. In McAllister, there are community members working to make sure Louverture School, the once all-black school in Michael J. Hunter Park, named after a black soldier from McAllister who died in the Vietnam War, are preserved and their history is known. The duo working to restore a cornerstone of the local black community in McAllister, Primus Moore and Herbert Keith, both graduated from the school in 1965. Students attended Louverture from 1908 through 1968 when students began integrating with McAllister schools. Moore and Keith purchased the building from McAllister Public Schools in 2014. It has always intrigued me why during the days of segregation, the community fathers of McAllister allowed the building to be named after a revolutionary. Tucson Overture was a, was a revolutionary. Not only was the school physically important, as it was the only option for many for education, but the spirit of the educators had a major impact on the students who attended. It was a source of pride for the community as we grew up. We had a lot of community events that were held there to help boost pride. And one of the things that we want to do, continue to do is to bring that pride back to the community by uh, renovating, starting in smaller sections of the building, renovating it, bringing it back where we can have community involvement in the building as we go back restoring the building. McAllister Public Schools used the building as an alternative school called Key Academy for several years before combining the alternative school with the main campus and then selling the property in 2014. The building has not been utilized in recent years due to physical condition, both from weather damage and also from vandalism. The building is in right now, it's it's in disarray. We had uh, vandals come in, strip wiring, copper, anything that they could sell. Air conditioning and heating unit stuff was stripped out. At this point, it is difficult to say what part of the building needs to be fixed first. However, Mr. Moore mentions the building needs a new roof and is hoping to receive assistance from either groups or individuals. Once we get, get a roof on it, where we can keep the water out of it, especially during the rainy seasons, then... Uh, it should be smooth sailing along the way. Across the street from the school is the Kermit Anderson Track, named after a beloved coach from Louverture School. This track is located in Michael J. Hunter Park. Devin Rowland has been working with a group called the Michael J. Hunter Project. This group has been focused on cleaning up the park, getting new equipment, and ensuring that it is a safe and vibrant place that is utilized by the neighborhood as it was in the past. The group also wants to make sure the community knows who Michael J. Hunter was. So Michael J. Hunter was the first soldier from McAllister, Oklahoma to die in the Vietnam War. And he was also drafted to go and he died in the line of combat, saving another soldier's life. Though there are people in town who can tell his story, when you go to the park named after him, it is not clear why the park touts his name. Hunter attended Louverture School and was killed in March of 1967 in Vietnam. He received a bronze star and a purple heart. 
The group has plans to make Hunter's story more visible for those who enter the park. You don't really get any information on him, and so the memorial we're looking at, we're wanting to get something that maybe we can get his picture put on it, and actually in a short bio in a story of why this park has been memorialized in his name. Devin says despite the hard times many are facing, these projects are helping to strengthen the sense of community. The biggest thing for us was setting the example for the younger generations of, hey, you know, you don't have to rely on your local government. You don't have to rely on, you know, local big corporations or companies to take care of your community. That's our job as the community to take care of it. And we have to get out there and do the work to see the changes that we want to see in our community. It's also about revitalizing that positive community feeling you know, wherever you live, you got to have each other's backs. Even though these projects are separate, they are in the same neighborhood and have a shared importance for the community. If you're interested in keeping up with these projects and learning about ways to contribute, you can find the Michael J. Hunter Group on Facebook, and the Louverture Historical Center can be reached at louverturehc68 at gmail.com. For Focus, Black Oklahoma, I'm Shalondra Harrison in Oklahoma City. You're listening to Focus, Black Oklahoma. Oklahoma presents numerous challenges for the LGBTQIA community. Two queer Tolsons talk with Judy Williams about how far our state still has to go to be a more welcoming and affirming place for others. In this segment, we talk with two Tolsons, Fernande Galindo and Quentin Marcellus, who are leaving an indelible mark on the LGBTQIA BIPOC communities in Eastern Oklahoma and beyond. First, we speak with Galindo. People call me Fern, they can't say Fernande. Um, my pronouns are they, them, theirs. Uh, sometimes I accept he, him, his per- pronouns. Uh, I'm a transmasculine, non-binary, 35-year-old uh, person living in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, a parent of three children. When Galindo lived in Tulsa from 2010 to 2018, they founded a group called Tulsa Metro Working Moms for single low-income working parents, generally BIPOC and LGBTQIA parents. This year, when I moved back after a three-year stint away, I started building some community um, specifically to support trans and queer Um, people of color living in and around Tulsa. I call that group uh, the Tulsa Intersectional Care Network because it specifically serves and supports multiply marginalized people who both are BIPOC and trans and queer and live with disabilities. Galindo wants people to seriously consider how systemic social inequities affect queer BIPOC people. They break down how these issues intersect. Queer people live with certain challenges, and sometimes that looks like economic disparity or loss of life. BIPOC people live with certain challenges, and that definitely um, includes loss of life and other economic disadvantages, even down to like a different life expectancy. And then you add in concerns that folks that live with disabilities, whether mental or physical, live with. And you combine all those, that really compounds not just the trauma that people live with, but also the disparities and disadvantages that they have to navigate and survive um, constantly. Galindo started a Facebook group, Queer Exchange Tulsa, as a safe, creative way to digitally build community during the pandemic. 
Their goal is to build a community that is safe and centers people who have multiple marginalized identities with the harm reduction perspective where everyone is welcome and accepted for who they are. So we call ourselves Tulsa Intersectional Care Network, or TICKEN for short, and um, we sort of have a brunch and dream. Uh, the first one I hosted at my house, and then we cooked, and it was a bit of a potluck, and we just talked. Like, we really are committed to creating space in this city that accepts, and, and I mean, my goal is liberation, like not just equity, equality, and acceptance, but true liberation. And sometimes with liberation comes also talk of like tearing systems down, which I am in support of, but I think if we don't do enough work and time to dream about what would happen, what, will, what would we build after we tear down the current systems, we're going to repeat the same behaviors and the same systems of behavior. Next, we speak with Quentin Marcellus. I go by he, him. I'm a music artist, a model, and an actor based in Sosa, Oklahoma. I also have a nonprofit organization that I just started called Care Free Queer, which is all about um, bridging, the, bridging the gap between queer people of color and the Midwest. Marcellus is originally from Tulsa, but has spent time in other cities working with the LGBTQIA community. Yeah, so I used to live in New York, uh, which is, I feel like, a second home to me. Um, and out there, I did a lot of LGBTQ nonprofit work. Um, I worked for um, like the Hedrick Martin Institute, which is a LGBT high school and nonprofit at the same time. And um, it's, they just do a lot of work in the community, and it's a really well-known um, place. And then also some other places like um, us helping us in DC. I used to live in DC as well. Marcellus discusses some of the differences he observed in queer communities of color in other cities. When I came back from New York City and moved back to my hometown, I noticed that, you know, in other cities, their gay community is way developed. The diversity is way developed. But here in Tulsa, um, that diversity is not the same. And so I noticed that as soon as I came back, and I noticed that the black queer community is not the same as other places that I've been as well. I'm like, there's definitely a need for someone to be a leader and kind of bridge that gap and, you know, bring that, that forth, that idea. And just, you know, uh, that's when the work began. I just started doing a lot of nonprofit work at the LGBTQ Center here called the Equality Center. Um, and uh, I also am a musician, so they gave me opportunities to perform. Um, and pride. His music, community service work at the Equality Center, and involvement with Black Queer Tulsa is a large part of his work in giving back to the community. He says 2021 has really been a time for coming together and discussing new ideas with other queer people. When asked about the importance of highlighting positive and uplifting Black queer experiences, Marcellus believes it begins within. So for me, queer joy is being in a healthy, happy relationship, whether that be with myself, whether that be with someone else. And specifically speaking with myself, just affirming myself. That's where the queer, the queer joy comes from, affirming me, loving myself. For Focus, Black Oklahoma, I'm Judy Williams in Tulsa. Nostalgic childhood memories leave lasting and humorous lessons. 
In this story, Sandra Slade asked the question, is imitation a form of flattery? Ever heard of the expression, imitation is a form of flattery? It's supposed to mean that if someone does something like you, you should be flattered. What baloney? I mean, if you copy someone's paper in class, neither the counselor nor the teacher will think it's flattering. As one of the younger grandkids, I always wanted to imitate my older cousins. You know, the ones I thought had it all, the ability to cook for themselves, like their own options. (laughs) Have friends come over just to hang out and do homework later? That was unheard of. Most important, only if you grew up around us. Whenever someone would get in trouble, ooh, ooh, we would make a joke about it and imitate them crying in the corner or some other embarrassing act. My cousin Matt would tease me and my cousin Tara about having to use talcum powder before we would go out with my Aunt Belle. Thankfully, not baby powder, as we know how that would have turned out. Tara and I would get upset because Matt would call us the Dusty Ladies and sing this song called the Dusty Ladies, according to the Bee Gees' Staying Alive and imitate how we use the puff to put on the talcum powder. Matt was singing low enough where my Aunt Belle couldn't hear us, and Aunt Belle would get onto us because we were mad. We would tell my Aunt Belle about it, and she would tell us to just ignore Matt, and he wouldn't make a big deal about it. Sitting and watching my Uncle Pumpkin in his garage, I listened to him complain about my aunt's cat Pearl getting into stuff she wasn't supposed to. This day, Pearl had knocked over the jars he had on his bench that had screws and whatnots, and he was cleaning it up as Pearl sat scratching and watching him. He shouted, Pearl, you got one more time, and I'm going to give you something to itch. I laughed as Pearl didn't seem to care. My Uncle Pumpkin pointed to a bag in the corner and said, One dust, and you're going to regret it, Pearl. A couple of days later, Tara and I were going to be picked up by our moms, but first, we had to go to Matt's football game. Since my Aunt Belle didn't want to smell it like all outdoors, we headed to the bathroom to get the talcum powder. Before we got to the bathroom, Matt started singing, Dusty Ladies, Dusty Ladies. I was done listening to this. I told Tara what Uncle Pumpkin had said. Tara went to the garage and I grabbed Matt's foot powder and we met back in the bathroom. Of course, we didn't know how much to put in, but we figured that the measurement of a tablespoon was good enough because we used that same amount of castor oil when we were sick to heal us. And we decided Matt needed healing from singing the song. So we put a tablespoon each in the foot powder and Tara returned the powder to the garage and I put Matt's foot powder back. Matt packed up his football stuff while imitating us, putting on the powder and singing the song, Dusty Ladies. My Aunt Belle called my mom to tell her we were leaving and would see her there. So we all climbed into the station wagon and Matt singing Dusty Ladies where only we could hear. As we sat in the bleachers and watched Matt put the cleats on that had been sprinkled with the foot powder, Tara and I giggled. My mom came and sat with us. Matt was a starter and took to the field. After the first nap, Tara and I could see Matt kicking his legs together, and we giggled even harder. My aunt and mom dismissed it as silly girls. After the second snap, Matt runs to the sidelines and his coach is yelling at him. Matt is frequently untying his shoelaces and his coach is yelling at him. Uncle Pumpkin takes off to the field to see what is the matter and Tara and I start to look around. Uncle Pumpkin motions to Aunt Belle to come to the field. At this point, my mom is praying everything is okay out loud. Matt is rubbing his feet, my aunt is putting ice on it, and my aunt is now scratching his hand as he is holding the cleats. My mother takes us to the edge of the field with my aunt, uncle, and Matt. My aunt looks at Tara and I and says, so, you wanna tell us what happened? Tara and I both have tears in our eyes because we know what's gonna happen next. We look at Matt, say I'm sorry, and start singing, Dusty Ladies, Dusty Ladies, real low. 
Book is Black Oklahoma is produced in partnership with KOSU Radio, Tulsa Artist Fellowship, and Tri-City Collective. Additional support is provided by the George Kaiser Family Foundation and the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Philanthropies. Our theme music is by Moffitt Music. Focus Black Oklahoma's executive producers are Kuresh Ali Lansanon and Bracken Clark. Our associate producers are Nick Alexandrov and Vanessa Gaona. Our production intern is Smriti Iyengar. Visit us online at kosu.org, tricitycollective.com forward slash Focus Black Oklahoma and YouTube at Tri-City Collective. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Focus Black OK. You can hear Focus Black Oklahoma on demand for free at kosu.org, NPR One, NPR.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever wanted to walk in the shoes of someone else, someone who thinks differently than you, to understand their perspective? KOSU invites you to take a concrete step towards healing the political divide through StoryCorps' One Small Step project. When you sign up, you'll get the chance to have a personal 50-minute conversation with someone new about your lives. So ditch the debate and learn the lived experience behind someone else's perspective. Sign up today at kosu.org slash one small step.